You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Which will be being baptized on that day. All right, um, now let me read to you from our scripture this morning. It comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 11. So if you whip out your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to do that, and you can follow with me. So chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These friends are the true words of the living God. Thank you, Jen. Good morning and, and welcome, JW. JW, when it was announced that you were going to Penang, there were a few loud whoops because there are people here. There you go. There are people here from Penang or actually nearby. She's not from Penang. <coughs> uh, and there are also, I think, Dutch speakers here. So after service, the Dutch speakers, those from Penang, go gather around him, talk to him, and pray for him because he is going to do God's work. All right? Are you, are you living a worthy life? What a question, right? Are you living a worthy life? What does the question even mean? I think it means, are you living up to a certain standard? Are you living up to a certain standard? Who are the people who might ask you this question? These might be the people in culture. Society asks you that question. Uh, people in your family ask you that question. Are you living a worthy life? Chinese New Year is coming up. You're going to be asked that question in one form or another. I think most importantly, you will ask yourself that question. 
identity and whether you live up to that identity. Now, think about credentials. Some people have certain credentials. The question is, are you living up to that credential? If you are living up to it, then perhaps you'll have that kind of job. Are you living up to that kind of job? If you have that kind of job, you would have these fruits, these things. Are you living up to that? Uh, it can be uh, things like family. Uh, in the family, you are a father, you are a child, you are a mother. Are you living up to that? People, society, people will ask you, and you ask that of yourself, right? This can be dangerous. It can be dangerous because it can lead you in a wrong way. It can make you, if you think you are over-fulfilling these things, it can lead you into pride. It can lead you into self-sufficiency. But it can also be crushing, right? Because very often we feel, and the people around us feel, that's you, you're not living up to that standard, and it crushes you. It crushes you into depression. So there's this danger. What is the solution? This, today's passage, in today's passage, Paul gives us the solution. And the solution is to find your identity in something that is permanent, perfect, and everlasting and solid. And then he teaches us what that identity is and how to live up to that. The identity is to find your true worth in Jesus Christ. So those of us who are Christians, you will find your true worth because it is already yours in Christ. Those of you who do not know Jesus Christ, this is where you will find true worth. And as the passage goes on, we will see how Paul uh, describes, if this is you, this is how you live. That's what this passage is about. So are you living a worthy life? Let me pray before we continue. Father in heaven, as we ponder about our worthiness, as we ponder about our lives, Lord, I pray that you will speak through your word. Open my mouth, open our hearts, open our ears, that your word may speak worthiness into us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. So let's open our Bibles to... Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Now, so far in the book of Philippians, Paul has been very friendly. He's expressing his joy. He's opening up his life. This is how horrible a situation I'm in. I am in jail. And then he goes on to say, this is the way I think about how I live. And the way I think about how I live is verse 21, right? For me to live and to die is for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, so far it's all friendly. And then we come to verse 27. A commentator says, like, verse 27 is like Paul lifting up a finger and telling guys, Wait, this is for your attention. I have told you about my life. My life for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now, Let's think about your life. What is your life about? What should your life be about? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is telling him, this is my life philosophy, so must it be yours. This is how I live my life. Let your manner of life be worthy of what you are, what you already are. And Paul begin, uh, begins to, to unpack this and align this worthiness with three or four things, right? So the first thing that he aligns it with is, is unity. We are worthy and we live worthy lives. We live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ if we live in unity. Worthiness demonstrated in unity. We see this in um, verses uh, 27, right? 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I am I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what do we notice about this worthiness? The first thing is this worthiness is observable. Paul says, I can hear of you standing in unity. Your opponents can see you standing in unity. This unity is important and this unity is observable. Now the word he uses to talk about worthiness and unity actually has a, a political slant to it. Here's the situation in, in Philippi. Philippi is a little city in uh, near Thessalonica and in that city is not originally a Roman city but their city, the people there have been given Roman citizenship because of what they have done and what what Caesar has done is is brought retired soldiers to live in that city. So if you are born in Philippi, you become a Roman citizen. So Paul is talking to these people who are in Philippi who have this idea of citizenship very strong in their minds. And he's saying, you guys, ex-soldiers and ex-soldiers standing around you, when I say stand in unity, Paul is saying stand in unity like soldiers. Stand in unity like athletes. Stand in unity because you are anchored in one single cause. So if you're a soldier, if you're an athlete, well, especially if you're a soldier, you stand in unity against an opponent or for a cause, right? Now Paul is saying, live worthy of the gospel of Christ because he's saying, not because they are citizens of Philippi, but because they are citizens of the kingdom of God. So if you are citizens of the kingdom of God, stand worthily and stand united against one enemy. And that one enemy will be the opposition, the enemies, the enemies of God. And um, as you stand united, you face that enemy. So worthiness is demonstrated by standing in unity. And as you stand together, worthiness is demonstrated by verse 20, 28 not frightened in anything by your opponents. When you can stand together for a common cause as a child, as a citizen of God, you stand together against your opponents. There's this, there's this element of fearlessness. Why is there even a need <coughs> for fear? If you are in Philippi at the time <coughs> Paul wrote this, you will be fearful <coughs> excuse me, because Paul is in prison. In other words, you stand the risk of becoming, getting in prison, of losing livelihoods, of losing your reputation. You stand in fear of that. You stand in fear of death. There have been martyrs in the church so far. There's Stephen. And then, of course, there's Jesus Christ. You stand in fear of imprisonment, loss, death. For us, right, sometimes, well, in, in Singapore, we are so privileged we don't really fear those things, right? We don't fear imprisonment for the cause. We don't fear death for the cause. But there's a third thing that we do fear, and that's the third thing that, that Paul talks about when it, comes to, when it comes to worthiness, right? And what is that? Worthiness demonstrated by suffering. Let me read verse uh, 29 to verse 30. For it has been granted... Granted, meaning it's been given to you, okay? Paul is speaking to the Philippians. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake. That's an astounding thing to hear, right? Because what is God saying? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, God, Philippians, God has given you two gifts. The first gift is the gift of salvation, gift of life, and into that we rejoice, we stand up, we are assured. And then he very shortly follows, but also suffer for his sake. This is a gift. Is there some typo? Was Paul out of his mind? No, right? We know he wasn't out of his mind because he's writing in prison and he's suffering, but he's rejoicing. I, I read a blog by a Christian writer who was, uh, who was struggling with the diagnosis of a bad cancer in his infant son. And this guy wrote, right, I, I had the tendency initially to have both fists clenched, clenched in anger, clenched in frustration, clenched in pain. But as I walked through this and God walked through this with me, I could open one hand so that one hand was still the, the hand of anger, perplexity and frustration. The other hand was a hand of reception. God, I will receive this I will receive your blessing. I will receive whatever gain I can get from this suffering. What possible gain can we get from this suffering? What kind of suffering are you in? What possible gain? That, that song that we just sang, right? Is he worthy, right? The first two or three verses were just talking about how all creation is growing, groaning, how the world is broken, right? And, and the benefit or the goodness or the blessing of suffering is this. It reminds us that we are not in a perfect world, that we are in a world that's broken and groaning and we are groaning together along with it. But we who are in Christ, even though we suffer, we know that the good news will come at the end. So that's one of the benefits of, of suffering. The other benefit of suffering is what this blogger said, right? This guy who... What, what suffering does is this. It drives you away, drives you out of the insufficiency of self-sufficiency. It drives you away from anger and frustration and it drives you towards an open-handed reception of God's presence, God's blessing. God's wisdom in your suffering. That's what suffering does. When you suffer, think about those things. What else does suffering do? If you're a Christian, suffering reminds you, this is me, but did Christ suffer the same? Yeah, absolutely, right? He suffered even worse than that. And in your suffering, you can begin to identify with the suffering of Christ. This is what he went through so that I can know him. This is what he went through so that I can have lives. This is what he went through so that I may be saved. The blessings of suffering. Very counter-cultural, but you better get a grasp on this because, friends, everyone is going to suffer because this is a gift of God, right? What other blessings do we get from, from suffering? At the end of suffering, or in the midst of suffering, you will see that suffering is, is like a polisher, right? It, it shapes you, 
all your sharp and unpleasant ends, God will polish it so that it's more blunt. All the gaps and divots in you, God will fill. Suffering shapes us, matures us, and even more, suffering equips us. Scripture tells us that those who are comforted will become comforters. And why do you need comfort? Because you have been suffering at one point. And you know, right? I mean, many of you here are in certain situations or have gone through certain situations. And now, with the scars, the blessedness of that suffering, you are able to counsel people with that same kind of suffering. The blessings of suffering. And then most importantly, as you look at where you are at now in this congregation, suffering pulls you together in unity. Suffering reminds you that God doesn't want you to suffer alone. God has provided people for you to suffer with, people for you to suffer alongside. And I spoke to, I, mean, I know a couple here who have had difficulty with, with miscarriages and they suffered and there was doubt in their mind, is the next one going to be okay? In their perplexity, pain and anger, people came alongside them. People came alongside them to suffer alongside them. Unity in suffering. This is how we display worthiness. This is how we display our worthiness um, according to the gospel. So when you think about suffering and unity and coming together, it, it requires two things, right? It requires for the person who is suffering to eventually have that, that time and the courage to be able to open up to people to say that I'm suffering and will you just be with me? It also requires people who are willing and able to pour time and energy and love to stand alongside one another to suffer. So suffering. The, so Paul says, right, worthiness is demonstrated by unity. Worthiness is demonstrated by fearlessness. And then worthiness is demonstrated by the fact that you suffer, and when you suffer, you don't suffer alone. He has one last point, which is actually the most important point, right? Worthiness is demonstrated by, by humility and other-centeredness. This, this seems to be Paul's, well, his, his closing thoughts on what worthiness is. Because he says in verse 2, Complete my joy. Let me tell you all these things and complete my joy by being like this. By being like what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy by being united. That's what he's saying. Just now I said, Paul tells people to stand united because there is a common foe, the opposition now, in any and every church, there are two types of threats. There's the external threat that we don't feel so much in Singapore. We don't have people banging on the doors and asking, what are you speaking, what are you preaching? There's the other kind of threat, and that is more pervasive, more dangerous, and, and more it goes under the radar, and that is the threat of internal strife. And that is what, Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
But this is the reason there's internal strife. When people have selfish ambition or, or conceit. Is this happening in the, in the city of Philippi, in the church of Philippi? I think near the end of the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 2, he says this thing. It's like a side remark, but it seems to be one of the important things, right? Chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Why do they need to agree in the Lord? Because they have some disagreement, right? So internal strife. What can internal strife do to churches? This is the greater threat. Internal strife can see churches splintered. Internal strife can see families divided. Uh, internal strife can see people stepping away from the faith. When internal strife in these situations make people ask, well, if this is what church is like, I don't think I want to be in church. That is the danger of internal strife. I know there are some here who have been wounded by internal strife in maybe previous churches and even this church. I know even now as I speak, there are wounded, angry, disappointed, betrayed hearts. And God and Paul is telling us this, there is a solution to this internal strife. And what is that solution? That solution follows in chapter 2, verse 3. So he says first, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here's the change, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 3 begins with, Do not be like this. Do not be self-centered, self-focused, inward bent, but be like that. Be humble, be outward focused, be other-centered. He goes on, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So that is the solution to internal strife, to take away from us this self-centeredness and to be other-centered. Now, this is uh, easy to say, right? But it's actually pretty hard to do. And we know it's hard to do because this kind of problems continue, right? And it continues today. And like I said, there are some here who are wounded, who are still suffering from this. So, so what is the solution? If this is the easy fix, what is the depth and the power behind what Paul is saying? He points. He encourages. So the first thing is he encourages the second thing is he points. Who do you point to when you want people to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be told that this is you, you can do this? You point to Jesus Christ, right? Before that, he encourages them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he says. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what is he saying? He's saying, if there is this, the traces of this in you, have you been encouraged in Christ? Have you been comforted from the love of the Father? Have you any participation in the Holy Spirit? If your answer to any one of those is yes, what does it mean? It means you are already a Christian. This is you. Paul is encouraging them by saying, look, I know I want you to live in a life, your life in a manner worthy of Christ, but first... Let me remind you, 
if these things are true of you, you are already a Christian. You are already able to live a life worthy of Christ. So Paul encourages by first telling them that you are already a Christian. And so if you're a Christian, what do you do? He tells them you need to have a certain mindset. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Now that you are a Christian, you actually do have a certain mindset. Maybe it's just covered by uh, your old patterns, by the sin that still colors your activities, but you do have this mind. It just needs to be covered, uncovered. So Paul's encouragement is you are already Christians, have a certain mindset. And this certain mindset, what does he say about the certain mindset? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, he tells them and he tells you, folks, he tells you, you are Christians. And then he tells the Philippians and he tells you, have this mindset. And then he tells the Philippians and he tells you, you have this mindset. If you are a Christian, this mindset is yours. It just needs to be uncovered. Something's covering it. And what does this kind of mindset look like? So Paul encourages, now he points to Jesus. Why does he point to Jesus at this point in time? I think Paul points to Jesus at, at this point in time because Jesus is an example. Paul likes to give examples, right? This is the exemplar, follow after him. So Paul points to Jesus because Jesus is an example. And later on we will see Paul points to Jesus because Jesus' example describes all the things that we need to do to have his mindset. And Jesus' example tells us that he's not just the example, he's the enabler. Because you have your mind in Christ, the mind of Christ is yours, you will be enabled. So he points to Jesus Christ. What other examples has Paul pointed to so far in the letter? He's pointed to himself, right? What did he say about himself at the end of uh, Philippians chapter 1? Essentially, he said, here I am. I am, a part, I am, a, I am a, an apostle of Christ, but I am in prison. I am suffering, but yet I rejoice. So that's a small little illustration of a person who has a high authority now brought down in the world's eyes to a low place and yet and yet he rejoices and yet he lives life for the cause of Christ so examples so let's look at Christ now the mindset of Christ let me read in total verses 5 to 11 because this is so beautiful and so powerful uh, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So God, Jesus, Jesus is God. What is the, what is the passage saying in verse 6? Who though he was in the form of God. It means all the things that we see of God, that we expect of God, is captured in Jesus. Jesus is God. He was in the form of God. 
all the attributes. Think about all the attributes of goodness that you can think of. Wisdom, nobility, perfect um, ethics, how you respond to people, selflessness. All these things are of God. All these things belong to Jesus Christ even before he came to earth. Now, there's some of you who are not Christians yet and who you're thinking, right, of worth and self-worth. Um, there are some of you who think I'm a, my self-worth is pretty high. Some of us think our self-worth is pretty low. Those whose self-worth, idea of self-worth is pretty high, with time, and I promise you this, that kind of self-worth will slowly have attrition and your sense of self-worth will come down. Those who have a low sense of self-worth or worthiness, you're like struggling down there, right? And as you, as a non-Christian, you observe people, you, you look at people's worth, is that person worth something? Is that person worth another thing? Why I'm saying this is, as you look at Jesus Christ, before he came to earth, he was God. All those attributes were his. Now these attributes, even if you're not a Christian, there are little traces of this attribute in you. That's why you can say, the guy's not a Christian, but he's a good person. He behaves well. Because in every single living human being, there's this thing called the image of God. There is this spark, this residue of true worthiness that is in you. And Paul's point, Paul's goal, my goal, our goal as Christians who are reaching out to you is to help you discover and ask God to uncover that sense of true worth that is in you. So non-Christians, this, this, this is relevant to you as we think of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the mindset of Christ who is God. So he who is God, what did he do? What radical thing did he do? Why is he worthy as an example? We thought of Paul, he's worthy because as an apostle he went to jail. Now we think of Jesus, the scale of his highness and his lowness is infinite. If Paul was an apostle, Jesus is God, was God before he became man. That's his starting point. He's worthy to be worshipped. And we are thinking of him as an example of what does it mean to be humble, right? To be humble means I think I'm in that kind of position. This is my status, yet I will not be self-centered, yet I will not be self-focused, yet I will lower, my, lower myself. So Christ is worthy as an example. What else did he do? There was a radical thing that he do. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's this radical emptying of Jesus Christ. What does the emptying of Jesus Christ mean? Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that when Jesus became man, when God became man, he took away a portion of his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. It did not mean that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, the man, for in him... The, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when we say that Jesus emptied himself, it didn't mean that he divested himself of any divinity. What it does mean, what it does mean is that even though he was this 
omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent God, he chose not to exercise his rights as man. Could he do these things as man? He could, but he chose not to do it. He emptied himself so that he could live as a man dependent on God the Father. Now, this radical emptying exemplifies something for us. Because very often we, we feel like we are in a, in a Christ-like, God-like position, right? When does that happen? That happens when, in a certain situation, you have the high ground of ethics and morals. I was speaking to a friend and he said, on the way to work with my wife, my wife said this and that and this and that. She had made a decision without asking him and the outcome wasn't good. So my friend was angry and he held the moral high ground, right? Why? Because his wife transgressed and he's good. And what does it mean to not empty yourself, to grab this high ground, to grasp it and to squeeze your wife? Why did you do this? Next time do this, right? That is holding on to that moral high ground. How else, what else does it look like? It looks like me, so I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon, right? When I step into the operating room, I have this sense of whew, self-worth, right? Nothing goes on there without me, right? And when nurses transgress, you know, I use the word, but I don't actually think that way. When nurses mess up, right? I have the professional high ground to actually scold them and, and to squeeze them, right? Not, not physically, okay, but, but, <laughs> but to tell them, you know, come on, you're trained. Why are you doing this, right? That's the moral high ground, right? Self-emptying is to be gracious and even though I don't let go of the high ground because it is me, right? But not to exercise it. But in love, turn and forgive and just let it pass, right? Then... Lack of self-emptying is shown when many of you go to fast food centers and the old auntie there is very slow and in your head, you know, the, the thought bubble is, can you hurry up? You know, I have this meeting to go to, that meeting to go to. That is your high ground, right? And to grasp it and not to let go of it is to feel bitterness, is to feel impatience and to express it, right? To empty yourself means you are still the CEO. You are still the high-flying whatever. But here, empty yourself. Lower yourself to that level. And let's love that person. So this is like, this is one of those examples of Christ that actually reaches us because these are everyday occurrences. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ. Why do we say this? Because Paul tells us, if you are a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. So he's reminding us the next time you feel angry, frustrated, you are in the right place, you have the moral high ground, empty yourself. It's okay. Christ can do this, you can do this. What about Jesus' mindset as a man? What was his mindset as a man? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So, the very high, eternal God became man. But not just man, he became a slave. From that high, he came to that low. Which is telling us this is what true and perfect humility is. If you think you're humble, your scale is like that. 
Jesus' skill is like, it just blows yours out of the water, right? Jesus' mindset as a man is one of obedience. He was equal with God the Father, but he obeyed, right? He obeyed by not transgressing laws, by not transgressing the commandments, but he obeyed to a certain point. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. From that very high place, he obeyed to the point of death. But that's not all, right? It goes even lower because Paul describes death twice. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to be the most. You want to be in the most shameful, lower situation in the Roman kingdom. Put yourself on a cross, or be put on a cross. So, Paul is saying Jesus didn't die of tuberculosis. He didn't die when he was struck by a cow. He died when he went to the cross. From that very high place, he went to that very low place. That's his mindset as a man. This humble, obedient, self-effacing, other-centeredness of Jesus Christ. This points to another meaning or interpretation or implication of how much are you worth? Are you living a worthy life? What is your worth? This is your worth. Your worth is this. You are so worthy, so precious that God the Father sent his son and, and the son reduced himself to the point of going on a cross to purchase, to buy you. That is your worth. Your worth is the price of Jesus, the son of God on a cross. So if any of you here have a sense of low worth because I'm not performing well in class, my credentials are like that, but I'm doing this, just re-anchor, refocus yourself. Your true worth is what Jesus paid for at the cross. That is your true worth. So that's Jesus' mindset as a man. Jesus' worthiness as a man, I can say, was amplified. You cannot amplify Jesus, Jesus the divine Jesus' worth, but Jesus the man, you know, as he lived and as he did things, things changed with him, right? Therefore, Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus' true worthiness. And why do I point this to you? Because Jesus is our example, but Jesus is always is also the enabler. Paul encouraged the Philippians by pointing them to this example, by telling them that you, Philippians, you, people in RHC, you do have the mind of Christ. And what is this mindset? Let me repeat. The mindset is one of non-grasping, self-emptying surrender of ourselves. That is the mindset. The mindset is one of humble self-denial, and other-centeredness by serving and by giving. The mindset is one of obedience, even though it brings you into suffering, even to the point of death. This is the mindset. And this mindset <coughs> is yours. It is yours because you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus because you have been encouraged in Christ 
you have been comforted by the love of the Father, you have participated in the Spirit, you have confessed that you are a sinner and that Christ is your Lord. This mindset is yours. Because He is the head and we are all just parts of the body. If this is the mind that we are part of a body, then this is ours. It is just that it is uncovered. So our prayer moving forward this day is, Lord, just remind me of who I am and help me to uncover this. So as we close, I want to encourage you with these things, right? Number one, consider yourself worthy. If you are a Christian, if you have called Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whatever your station in life, however badly you have failed or are failing or are going to fail, you are worthy. Christ died for you. There is great worth in you. If you're not a Christian, like I said, there is this little pearl of great worth that is in you, the image of God that has been tarnished by sin and by suffering, and that is just waiting to be restored, waiting to be uncovered, waiting to be brought to life. And Jesus is telling you today, brother or sister, come to Jesus today so that that pearl of great price that is just hiding in you, waiting to burst out, will be uncovered. And if that's what you want to do afterwards, just come to the front. People will talk to you, pray with you. If there's nobody here, just grab whoever is near you. Do that. Okay? You are worthy. The second way to respond is to respond to Paul. Paul calls the Philippians. He calls us to live a life worthy of the life Christ has given you. And so, empty yourself of your rights, of your high ground, and be humble and love and serve the people around you. And in doing so, expect to suffer. Because suffering is a gift that God has promised us. But in that suffering, as the blogger did, you may have one, fin one fist clenched, but open the other, and then open both hands to receive the blessing and the formation God will bring you through. And then finally, in all these things, as you are here with people side, well, beside you, do these things united with one another. Whatever internal strife there may be, put it before God. Humble yourself. Turn toward the other. And I think and I know that when we do this, God will be glorified and you will live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord, Holy Spirit who speaks to us and speaks in us. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of honor and glory and blessing and praise. There is no one other than you who receives any praise from us, Lord. And yet, Lord, you are humble. You are other-centered. You are person-centered. You are human-centered enough to come down to make us worthy. So, Lord, those of us who are in Christ, just reinforce and remind us, Lord, that we are worthy. Those of us, Lord, who have yet to know you, Lord, uncover that pearl of great worth that is in them, Lord, that image of God, Lord, and just polish it and, shine it and sharpen it, Lord, so that they can come to saving faith. Help us, Lord, to empty ourselves of our rights and privileges. Help us to suffer with both hands. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. 
You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg. 